before we begin, I know we already had a prayer, but I'd love to say one more prayer just before we start. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to study history, more history. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this message is actually, it's called a history of agriculture for our future, and it's more of a history of agriculture than, this is not so much of a sermon or a Bible study. This is more just looking at some snippets of history within, well, the history of our church. And Now, we know, obviously, an agricultural, agricultural conference like this, we all know here who the very first gardener was, and that was... God, right? God is the first gardener. And then Adam and Eve, right? Because it says that God planted a garden eastward in Eden, right? So God actually did plant, and then he had his people, Adam and Eve, and, and we've been doing it ever since. And slowly we've gotten away with it, or away from it, not away with it. We've gotten away from it because now it's probably like less than 1% of people who actually earn a living as farmers, right? So humans are doing it less right now than in any part of earth's history. But One of the aspects of agriculture that we believe when it comes to life and education is that it affects the character. And let's look at this. Character, you may have heard the saying, this is just kind of a human saying, is that character is what you do when no one is looking. I think there's some truth to that. But it's also probably what you do, I think it's also it may be what you do when no one is forcing. You know? Because if nobody's forcing you to do something, really your character might come out. Now think about agriculture and character. This is kind of a bad illustration of it. What was Eve doing? Well, she was a part, she was a gardener, she was a farmer. The she was in a garden and nobody was looking. Right? And what did she do when no one was forcing her? Or no one she thought was looking. Now God was looking. And I'll bet the Garden of Eden looked a whole lot better than that picture I gave you. Right? You think I could have come up with something better than that. But So nevertheless, what was she doing? Well, when no one was forcing her, when no one was keeping her, she went and she did something that she shouldn't have done. And here we are today with all the suffering that is in the world. But what she did when no one was forcing revealed her character. You see, character is kind of a revelation of who you are to the world, right? Your character reveals who you are to the world. In agriculture, agriculture is a field of work where largely you don't have an overseer or ruler other than God. Agriculture is a field of work where you don't have somebody always... Now, okay, if you're managing a farm and you have an overseer over you as the manager, okay, you may have an overseer. But in general, there's something about agriculture that basically is a connection between us and God and learning the laws of nature all around us. And might it be, in part, that agriculture might be a training in self governance. We're going to talk about self-governance. And you may have heard that term before. And maybe some of you have read, this. Is, remember, this is more a history lesson than it, this is not so much a sermon or a Bible study. We'll hit a few Bible verses, but this is more a history lesson. You may have read from studies in education by E.A. Sutherland. 
this great educational man from our history who started, what school did he start? Yes, right? He started the Madison School, and he also worked with Battle Creek there before that. And uh, notice, he wrote in his book, so this is a kind of a long quote from his book, about Horace Mann, who was a kind of a, a, a historical figure in education in the United States. Horace Mann wrote, One of the highest and most valuable objects to which the influences of a school can be made conducive consists in training our children to be self-governing. Mr. Mann had the following experience in dealing with students. He gave the young men to understand that he looked to them to be their own police. When a tutor who had resided in a gentleman's dormitory to keep order was exchanged for a lady teacher, Mr. Mann appealed to the senior class one day after chapel service to know if they would not sufficient, were not sufficiently strong in moral force to take care of the building without such supervision. So he's asking these young men, listen, can you guys, I mean, wouldn't you rather have people not looking over you? As young people, wouldn't you rather have somebody not looking over you? Well, if you would rather have that, are you willing to stand up and saying, hey, look, I will be my own overseer. I'm not going to do crazy things. I'm not going to fight the rules, but I will just choose self-governance. And what ended up happening? Well, it says they rose to their feet simultaneously, accepted the trust joyfully and confidently. They kept the promise well and transmitted its spirit to their successors. Mr. Mann, however, was always on the alert to assist these self-governing students by a word of caution or by forewarning them of impending trouble. It was Mr. Mann's pride and delight ever to walk, uh, to walk through the gentleman's hall at any hour of the day or night and to take visitors with him to convince them that a true spirit of honor and fidelity could be evoked from the young. In matters of self-government, at one time, he wrote, our dormitory, nearly filled with male students, has no tutor or overseer. In study hours, it is as quiet as your house. We have no rowdyism, no gambling or card playing, and we have nearly succeeded in exercising profanity and tobacco. Now, this is back in the 1800s. And his point was, schools should be a place for training young people in self-governance so that they learn to take responsibility for themselves so that they're not always needing somebody looking over their back. They don't need an overseer. Now, that may remind you of a passage of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6, through eight, which says, go to the ant, thou what? Sluggard, that, you lazy person, right? Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, what? Overseer or ruler provides her meat in the summer and gathers her food in the what? Harvest. Now, typically when we would think of gathering a harvest, we would think of agriculture. Well, obviously the ants aren't like planting, you know, seeds and like raising things up, but they are harvesting. And they do what they were designed to do, and they don't need an overseer to force them to do it. They just do what they were designed to do. The strange thing about humans is, we have learned to rebel against our Creator. And we don't do what we were designed to do. And so, we typically are overseers, and we have to have have people looking over us. We need police and to oversee society. And the further we get from God, the more we need overseers like police in society, right? The further we get from Him. But the educational system, at least if it were after God's order, should actually be something where we are trained in self 
government, self-government. Now, I'm going to show you two quotes on this. Remember, this is more of a historical message than a Bible study. But notice this quotation here. It says, this, is the, this quote is actually in the context from Christian education, in the context of agriculture and manual labor training in our schools, the character must receive a proper, must receive proper discipline for its fullest and noblest development. So, discipline is necessary in order for your character to develop. Now, keep that word discipline. What is the actual purpose of discipline? Notice this quotation here. The object of discipline is the training of the child for what? Self-government. He should be taught self, what? Reliance and what? self-control. So notice the the purpose of of training for all of us in life to be disciplined is to train us for self-governance and teach us to be self-reliant, not relying on other people to take care of us. Some of my best friends, some of my good friends in this world, uh, you may know him, Andy Weaver. He's Amish. Anybody know Andy Weaver? You ever seen him before? Andy Weaver and his family, he has eight children, I believe, and those children are such diligent workers. You go to their house and the parents say, all right, kids, you, you need to make some food for us. And those kids, they're, they're down on their knees and they're, they're putting wood in the, in the stove so they can cook the food there for you. And it is just such a beautiful thing to see. And one of the young men here who was cooking at the Amish camp meeting there, he said, I have never seen humans work as hard as those children. Almost no adults work as hard as those children. They, and, and he said, they'll work and they'll work and they'll, they'll cut and they'll be in the kitchen. And, and then one of them cut her hand terribly. And so they had to bandage her all up. And she was crying that she couldn't get back to work in the kitchen. She wasn't crying that she cut her hand. She was crying that she couldn't keep working. These children about, have been taught self-governance. Let's go for it. What's that? Oh, my wife is saying it. And they're some of the happiest human beings I've ever met. You might be thinking, that's terrible. Those little hard workers, right? They are the happiest. It, literally, I walked out of their house with my wife. We were eating, they fellowshipping with them, eating in their house. And I said, that was one of the greatest experiences of my entire life. We are told that nothing is so powerful a testimony for the gospel as a well-ordered, what? Family. And I can testify seeing that there. Now, let's look at the cultivation of character, character in agriculture. In the cultivation of the soil, the thoughtful worker will find that treasures. This Here we're talking about what? Hidden treasure. In the cultivation of the soil, the thoughtful worker will find that treasures little dreamed of are opening before him. The constant contact with the mystery of life as they work in the soil and the loveliness of nature as well as the tenderness called forth in ministering to these beautiful objects of God's creations, our creation tends to quicken the mind and refine and elevate the character. And the lessons taught prepare the worker to deal more successfully with other minds. So there's something about working with the plants or maybe even working with the animals that teach us, they refine us, the, the sensitivity we need to, to you know, put with the plants to help them to grow well. We can learn from that and use that with other people, right? So what should agricultural training do? This is powerful. 
if there had been agricultural and manufacturing establishments in connection with our schools, devoting a portion of each day to mental improvement and a portion of each day to physical labor, there would now be a more elevated class of youth to come upon the stage of action, to have influence in molding society. The youth who would graduate at such institutions would many of them come forth? Notice what would happen if you learned both agriculture or uh, manual training and you were getting a, a mental education at the same time. It says that they would come forth from these institutions, many of them, with stability of character. Stability of character, but it doesn't end there. They would have perseverance, fortitude, and courage to surmount obstacles and principles that would not be swerved by wrong influence, however popular. Isn't that powerful? We have lost, most of our schools have lost their mission. We've instead just done whatever the other schools have done in society, and we may be throwing a prayer every once in a while. As if that is Christian education. Right? But we were told by mixing these two things together, it would actually make people who would not be swerved into false ideas. Think about this with me for a moment. Think about this. One of the common things you see is that people who live in the city who have never had... I grew up in the city, by the way. People who live in the city are more prone to be led astray by arguments and sophistry than people who live in the country. I'll actually prove that to you right now. Check this out. This, This is... What about research on nature and theology? Or country living and theology? What does research actually show? This was... Actually, this has been tested, a large study, beliefs in the city versus the country, a substantial study led out by 57 researchers in 20 different countries revealed that people in rural or natural environments are more likely to believe in God than city dwellers. Isn't that interesting? Living in the country, part of it is because you're in contact with nature. And when you're in contact with nature, it brings to mind the Creator. Yes or no? I shared with you that even the greatest skeptic on planet Earth, Richard Dawkins, says when he looks at the things of nature, it makes him want to worship. But then he thinks about the theory of evolution and he squashes his desire. But yet it still makes him desire to worship. But imagine if you live in the city and you never think about nature. See, he thinks about it because he's, he thinks about biology and so forth. Because I think he's an evolutionary biologist. So he thinks about biology, he thinks about nature, and it makes him think about God. But imagine you think nothing about Nature, you never see it. You're on your cell phone all day. You're watching television. You're on the computer. And you only see buildings. You don't have time to think about God. Now, this actually proves my point better than the last one even. These are beliefs, city versus country. This is uh, taken from Barna. You've probably heard of the Barna organization, the polling group. Participants were asked several different questions in a poll. They asked this question. If your belief offends someone or hurts their feelings, then you're... Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I, thank you, Fadia. I appreciate it. We got the same, same situation going on. Let me do it again. So, participants were asked several different questions in a poll. And if your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, it is wrong. Do you agree with that statement, yes or no? No. You all said no. Now, notice what they found when polling young people in the city versus young people in the country. 
what they found is that those who reside in the city were six times more likely to agree with that former statement. Now think of what that means. And I don't say this to be pejorative, to put people down, to be insulting. It's just a fact. If you believe something that offends someone else, it's wrong. Think that through. What if you believe two plus two is four and somebody else thinks it's five? Then you are wrong if you believe that statement. Two plus two now is no longer four. Or what if you say, so here's the thing, nobody can live by this idea. It's impossible. It, it, can, it doesn't even make sense. Think about this. So if an atheist is an evolutionist, then they, and, and a Christian is a creationist, then the evolutionist says, oh, if it offends the Christian, then I have to give up evolution. And the creationist, if he offends the evolutionist because he believes in creation, has to give up his belief, and now neither of them believe anything. Yes or no? That doesn't even make sense. So what this is saying to us is that living in the city makes you seven times more likely to believe something that is just irrational. Yes or no? Now, I don't say that to be pejorative. It's just simply a fact because that statement is self-defeating. It destroys itself. Yet you can see how people in the city can be more prone to believe something that is inherently wrong. And so this is very serious. So... Remember, we're talking about history of agriculture. This plaque right here, I had the opportunity, we were over in Australia a couple of years back, and, and uh, this is at a school called, what's the school over there called? Avondale, right? And there at Avondale, you see, whoops, I went too fast, this little plaque right here talks about about 500 yards east of this spot was found in that furrow that was see, seen in a dream which led to the establishment of the Australasian Missionary College in 1894, which we now call Avondale. And this school, and they were led by a dream. We have been led, my wife and I, uh, in ministry, there have been, we, we're not always led by dreams. I have a lot of nonsensical dreams. But we had a time where we were in ministry together, and three of us had the same dream, and it was leading us in our ministry. It was actually leading us away from something. And we knew that God was leading us. And we had this experience in the past of our church where this dream was given that 500 yards from this spot, somewhere in this vicinity, there was this, there was this furrow in the ground. You may remember the story. There was that furrow. And out in the middle of a field, just a random spot, there was some dug up earth of a furrow, something like nine inches deep, six feet long. And, and they looked at it. And the men there, in the dream, there were some men standing by the furrow. And they were saying, oh, this is worthless soil. They were used to the soil back in Iowa. It was Iowa. That's right. They were used to the soil back in Iowa, and, and they see this, you know, sandy-looking soil, and they're like, oh, this is no good. This is worthless. And then, and then in the dream, one is standing by who says, false witness has been born against this land. This land will actually grow all kinds of things. And then the very next day, she arrives on the site, and, and she tells people her dream, and she gets there, and what happens? They, there, there is this trench sitting out in the middle of a field, this furrow rather, sitting out in the middle of a field, and then there's guys standing over it going, oh man, this soil is worthless. This is just useless. And they, someone had even said, some animal from Australia, they said if a bandicoot would walk across this whole farm, he would have to take his lunch with him because he couldn't have any food there. There's just nothing there. What's a bandicoot? I have no idea. Some kind of Australian animal, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, this is what, what happened there. So this school was a school like we had never seen before. Like we had never seen before. Now let's read a little bit about it here. This is Avondale. What was the result of their education that mixed agriculture, which 
had manual labor with the gospel and with you know, typical you know, educational training. Every term of school, which we have held at Avondale, has resulted in the conversion of nearly every student in the school. In some terms, this has been the case without exception, and in others, there has been not not more than two or three exceptions, meaning what this school was seeking to do was not only train them in manual labor and agriculture and in typical bookwork, but their goal was that these young people would be what? Eternally saved. Not just a prayer here or there, but actually seeking that these children will be saved. And when they are in connection with the soil, they're actually more likely to be saved because they're in contact with their Creator on nearly a daily basis. We see this there at Avondale. But let's go forward about Avondale. It was a different school than what had been. God's people in Australasia are to be moved upon by the Spirit of the Lord to give sympathy Oh, sorry, I did it again. Yell yell at me, Fadi, if I keep doing this. Sorry, we're trying to work two computers together. Uh, God's people in Australasia are to be moved upon by the Spirit of the Lord to give sympathy and means or financial support for the encouragement of many charitable and benevolent enterprises, which shall be the means of teaching the poor, the helpless, and the ignorant how to what? help themselves. Notice our schools, I mean, yes, not all schools had to be exactly that, but our schools were to teach people how to help what? Themselves. That sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? But if you can help yourself, meaning if you can take care of your own finances, if you can make a living, you'll be better prepared to do what? Help other people. Unless you're unconverted, and then you'll just keep all the money to yourself and you won't help anybody. If you're unconverted, you're unconverted, right? But if the Lord has changed your heart and you have the ability to to build things, if you have the ability to have a job, to to do something in life, to be a farmer, to do anything, you're better able to help somebody else. And this is one of the things that we were supposed to do in connection with our schools. Now, every effort within their power must be put forth. This is, sorry, this is from sketches from the life of Paul. And I'm not going to go into the context, but it just says every effort within their power must be put forth to avert destruction, for God helps those only who help what? Themselves. Now, this isn't talking about you get to go to heaven by helping yourself. No. It means on earth. What if, what if you decided, I am just going to sit around on my couch and watch television or go on the internet, and, and God will just take care of me, and he will provide food for me. And not only that, not only will he provide it, there will be somebody who will actually make it for me as I sit around doing nothing. You think that's going to work out well? Do you have enough faith to believe in something like that? No, that's not even faith, right? Because the Bible tells us that if a man does not take care of the needs of his own household, he is worse than an infidel, right? So we are told that God helps only those who help themselves. This is probably more in the temporal matters. But let's go forward speaking about Avondale and our future. Many recognize the fact in the community there around Avondale, Corumbong, I've had the opportunity to be there, many recognized the fact that the whole community had been transformed since we were there. A woman was not, uh, not of our faith, said to me, you would not believe me if I should inform you fully in regard to the transformation that has taken place in this community as a result of you moving here, you're moving here, establishing a school and holding these little meetings. Our schools were made not only to transform the lives of the children, that they would give their lives to Jesus as their personal savior. 
but also that it would transform the communities around them. And that's what they were told. You wouldn't believe how much the school has impacted the community around us. This is our first Exhibit A, the Madison School. But now we move on to, I'm sorry, Avondale. Now we move on to the Madison School. And this wonderful school in Tennessee. And what do we see about this? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you a little bit about something about prophecy. We don't have time to study these things on detail. But there's going to be something that happened in Acts chapter 8. After after Acts chapter 2, you have the Pentecost. In Acts chapter 8, persecution came on the church, and the church was scattered everywhere abroad. That is going to happen again in the future. It's called the Great Scattering. The Great Scattering. We're going to look at Madison, like schools, and the Great Scattering. The class of education given at Madison School is such as will be accounted a treasure. There's that, this treasure, this hidden treasure of great value by those who take missionary work in foreign fields. If many more other schools were receiving similar training like Madison, we as a people would be a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. The message would be quickly carried to every country and souls now in darkness would be brought to the light. If we had more schools like the Madison School, schools once again that had agriculture, manual training, and also you know studies in the sciences and so forth, if we had more schools doing that, and as the students would become these kind of self-reliant individuals, they would be more prepared to go be missionaries. Many of us don't dare to go to, in the mission field because we're useless almost when it comes to practical things. Yes or no? I'm not saying that as, a, as an insult, but it's true. It's like if all you know how to do is write papers, what are you going to go do if you, if you end up in Uganda? Right? Are they waiting for papers over there? No, right? They need help. And if we don't know how to help ourselves, how are we going to help the world? You understand? So we're told if we had more schools like this, what if we began to train young people in educational fields, both in agriculture, manual training, the world would be changed by the gospel if we could actually help them out once again. We go forward. It would have been pleasing to God while the Madison School has been doing its work if other schools, other such schools, had been established in different parts of the southern field. And praise the Lord, there were some after that time. The time is soon coming when God's people, because of persecution, will be scattered. In many countries, those who have received an all-around education will have a great advantage wherever they are. The Lord reveals divine wisdom in thus leading His people to train all their faculties and capabilities for the work of disseminating the truth. Isn't that powerful? Friends, we need to learn these things once again. This is many, many. I wasn't raised you know, in the Adventist church, and so, so, but I know many of the young people have been I'm just going to be honest. They have been let down in our educational system. Severely. We know, we know what they should be doing. And we've gotten so far. Now, praise the Lord, there are a few schools that do these things. And praise the Lord, more and more schools are getting back to it. Amen? And praise the Lord for AdAgra that is trying to help facilitate an actual curriculum to teach students these things so that we can get back to this instead of every school having to necessarily just start from total scratch. Right? You can actually have this as a part of the curriculum. And so I'm excited about what is going on there. But notice what we read about P.T. McGann, one of, the, one of the founders of the Madison School along with Sutherland. 
he said, Professor McGann said, at first we felt that the school farm was too large. It was like, I don't know, 413 acres or something. We had planned in our own minds an ideal school, uh, sorry, an ideal school farm which should be small but kept so clearly and orderly that it would be a model. When we told Sister White our objections to the size of the farm, she said that the time would come when many that are now living in the cities would, need, would be forced to leave in order to live the truth and that we should make the farm a place of refuge. The schools, these areas, places in the country should be places of refuge where some of, of, the, of these could stop for a while and be taught how to make their living, make a living from the soil. Then they would have courage to go out into the country where they could find land, make a home, and educate their children in harmony with God's law. Remember, when you move to the country, your kids are less likely to be led away by deluded thoughts. This is what we're actually seeing from the surveys out there. Now, it's interesting that we were told if we had more schools like Madison, we would be a spectacle to the world. Did Madison become a spectacle to the world? We have articles from places like Reader's Digest. They wrote about the Madison School because this was a school that raised their own provisions that you could go there with nearly no money and you could walk out of the school with nearly no money because there was work to do all the time. And so here's an article actually speaking about the Madison School. It was called A College That Feeds Itself by Milo Hastings. And notice this quote right here in the middle. It's probably slightly blurry, but it says, in the business, this, this is... Uh, In the business, this guy just heard about the school. He was interested. He drove over there. He ended up writing this article about it. In the business of educating any young person to the realities of life, food is as good a thing with which to begin. It is the basis. Food is the basis of physical life and the basic reality of economic existence. He who has learned how to produce food for himself and others becomes an anchor Man in any civilization. All others are dependent upon him. It's a heavy thought, isn't it? Never quite thought about it that way, right? These people are anchor. These, are, these men are anchors of civilization. These individuals, right? And all others are dependent upon farmers. And that is true, right? This is very, very true. Notice this. You maybe heard of this little old lady called Eleanor Roosevelt. You ever heard of her before? Who was she? She was, she was the president's wife, right? She actually had heard about this little old school, Madison, there in Tennessee, where young people were raising their own provisions, raising their own food. They were becoming practical. And she went there and she was so amazed by it, she actually wrote an article about the Madison School. And notice what she says. This is quite powerful. She says, whoop, back to that. She says, he added that he had made a survey, they had made a survey amongst the school, of a thousand of their former graduates, and not one among them had been forced to accept help, either from the government or private agencies, during the Great Depression. What does that mean? People around the nation were standing in bread lines when times became difficult in the stock market crash of 1929. And out of a thousand surveyed students that had formerly gone to the Madison School, not one of them ever had to wait in line. Why? Because they had learned self-reliance. They had learned self-control. They had learned habits of industry. And because of that, what happened? They were able to take care of themselves in the hard times. 
Maybe you've seen one of those, I think it was the documentary Urban Danger, where they were interviewing people who lived in the city during the Great Depression, and then they interviewed people that lived in the country. And the people in the city were like, yeah, we saw our neighbors evicted, we saw them thrown out on the streets, not knowing where they were going to live. And then you had the people in the country, they were like, well, it was hard before the Depression, it was hard during the Depression, and it was hard after the Depression, because farming is hard work. But we always had plenty of food, Right? They didn't have to rely on somebody else, right? And we know that the times are coming again where it's, when it's going to become difficult to buy or sell previous, just prior to the time of trouble. Time of trouble, you know, we flee to the mountains. We let go of our possessions and so forth, right? But prior to that time, it's going to be difficult to buy or sell, and that's why we're told we need to raise our own provisions. For in the future, the problem of buying and selling will be a very serious one. So let's go forward. I'm going to share with you some quick information. You've probably heard this before. A study on delayed gratification. You can hardly see. Oh, yeah, you can see it better over here. So, you, so how many of you have heard of the marshmallow study? Yeah, I know a bunch of you have heard it. And you've probably seen the videos of it too, right? Where the little munchkins, they take three to five-year-olds, and they put them in a laboratory. They set them at a table. And on that table, you know, they're sitting on a chair, just a plate and a marshmallow. And these kids are three to five years old. And they tell the kids, they say, listen, if you can wait, I'm going to leave the room. And if you can wait until I come back in the room, if you don't eat the marshmallow, I'll give you what? Another marshmallow. You get to eat two marshmallows. And some of the kids, they were, they were like, they're looking at it. And then they're like, ooh, they couldn't even look at it. Because it was just so tempting to look at the marshmallow, right? And some of the kids, like, they close their eyes. Other kids are like sniffing the marshmallow. Like, they're just tempting themselves. Other kids, they go so far as to lick the marshmallow, right? They're, they're just tempting themselves, but they didn't eat it, right? And then, what happened? Some of the kids couldn't even wait till the researcher was, had finished their sentence. They already stuck the thing in their mouth, right? No ability to have delayed gratification. They followed these children for 40 years, 40 years, and they discovered that these children who did not eat the marshmallow did better on their SATs at the end of high school, you know, their college kind of entrance exam. They ended up having better social skills later in life. They were more successful. They were less prone to being overweight. What it showed is that by the age of three, to a degree, your character is already established, right? So one of the greatest predictors of success in life is a child's ability to delay gratification. And agriculture is a it is the art of learning delayed gratification. You do not put a seed in the ground and come back in three minutes and there is a tree with fruit to you know, pick from and eat, right? You know, most of the time we graft trees anyway, but that's beside the point. You get the point, is that you, you simply don't just plant a seed and get, you have to wait weeks and months to finally get what you're planting. It is a training course in the art of delayed gratification. And taking this out of our schools has been a travesty. It has been. That's why I'm so excited that this, this uh, you know, course is being trained both for you know, all, all three groups, whether it's those in elementary school, the middle school, the high school, that this is actually being designed. And my hope is that it will inspire people all over the place. Speaking of delayed gratification, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit, right? We need to learn patience, self-control, and delayed gratification. I want to share with you just a few quotes on self-sustaining. We are talking, these schools, our schools were to be self-sustaining, we read, right? Our schools, we read, were not made to rely upon food from the outside world. 
They were actually to rely on the fruits, grains, and vegetables from their own land. What if we actually did that? Notice what it says. Those who are taught to earn what they receive will more readily learn to make the most use of it. And in learning to be self-reliant, they are acquiring that which will not only make them self-sustaining, but will enable them to help others. That's what we talked about right from the get-go. Now, it goes on to say here, it says, Many do not see the importance of having land to cultivate and raising fruits and vegetables, that their tables may be supplied with these things. I'm instructed to say to every family and every church, God will bless you when you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, fearing, lest by unwise treatment of the body, you will mar the Lord's plan for you. Many don't see the importance. Many scoff at it. Many think it's ridiculous, except then something happened. The year 2020 arrived. And everybody was gardening. Yes or no? Not everybody. That's an exaggeration. But it seemed like it. The the seed companies were running out. Uh, Johnny's, you know. Everybody loves Johnny's. But Johnny said, hey, if you're not a farmer for a while, you can't buy from us, right? So once again, this showed us that, listen, it it is a blessing to be able to buy seeds. But sooner or later, what if that would have happened and we never would have been able to buy seeds again? Can you imagine? What if that was it? It isn't, praise the Lord. And hopefully we have many more years to spread the gospel to planet Earth. But the point is the time is coming. So we need to learn self-sustainability, right? So it goes on to say, it says, the Lord has shown me repeatedly. You probably heard this quotation. This quotation is shared all the time. Saying, don't store up your food for the winter. And let's see what the quote says. The Lord has shown me repeatedly that it's contrary to the Bible to make any provision for our temporal wants, period. Game over, don't read anymore. No, there's more to the quote, right? That we should not make any provision for our temporal wants in the what? Time of trouble. Are we in the time of trouble today, yes or no? No. So is this quote directly about today? It's about the time of trouble. But most of the time it's just talked about like that's just the end of the, the sentence, right? Before you get to the time of trouble. I saw that if the saints had food laid up by them in the what? In the field or in the what? In the field, I'm sorry, I did it backwards. Uh, by them in, uh, okay, laid up by them in or in the field in the time of trouble. I killed that. Let, let's start that over. The Lord has shown me repeatedly that it is contrary to the Bible to make any provision for our temporal wants in the time of trouble. I saw that if the saints had food laid up by them, meaning stored up in your house, or in the field in the time of trouble when sword, famine, and pestilence are in the land, it would be taken from them by violent hands and strangers would reap their fields. And so people have said, see, you shouldn't store up food at all. Now think about this for a moment. How did even, even any church, whether it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Seventh-day Adventist, in, in the year like 1870 and the year 1900, what did people do when winter came? They had already stored up what? The food, right? They had had jars and they had cans and dried things stored up for the winter. Were they hoarding? No, they were having food ready for the winter because winter's cold and most parts of the United States you can't grow a lot in the winter unless you're further, further south. But you get the idea. So this is talking about not storing up food right now for the winter. It's talking about storing up food for the time of trouble. In the time of trouble, if you have anything in your field, what's going to happen? The people are going to take it from you. The time of trouble, it's not going to do us any good. What do we do? Before the time of trouble, there will come a time where God tells you personally, it's time to sell your property. It's time to give all your things to the Lord's work and to run to the mountains because it ain't going to do you no good, right? 
that time comes. But before that, there's a little time of trouble. And during that time, this quote is not talking about. We'll see the next one that is. But notice what it says here. I saw that uh, it goes on to say, where was that? It says, then will be the time, at the time of trouble, then will be the time for us to trust wholly in God. And he will sustain us. I saw that our bread and water will be sure at that time and that we shall not lack or suffer hunger for God is able to spread a table on your farm. No, for us in the wilderness. So the time of trouble is the wilderness. Wilderness, wilderness. You can't own your property at that point, right? And from what I understand. And so looking at that, so many times this is used to say, hey, don't store up anything for any time period. But schools like Madison, what did they have to do? They had to store up for the winter. That was just the way it was done. I mean, it sounds crazy, but we were told not to depend upon other people for the food, but we should raise that from our own soil. We read here in the Advocate. It says the people should learn as far as possible to depend upon the products that they can obtain from the soil. You may have heard of this right here. What do we think? When you see ABC in the context of agriculture, what do you think? The A, B, and C of education, right? Agriculture is to be the A, B, and C of education. Have you ever seen the context of that quote? Not just the part about the A, B, and C of education, period. What does it go on to say? Notice this. It says, here's the beginning of it. Here's the part we all know. Working the soil is one of the best kinds of employment. Calling the muscles into action and resting the mind. Study in agricultural line should be the A, B, and C of the education given in our schools. Amen. But then notice the very next sentence. Notice what it goes on to say. This is, the very, this is the very first work that sh- should be entered upon. Our schools should not depend upon imported produce. For Yeah, oh, I didn't do it again. Thank you. Thank you. Yell at me. Keep, keep doing that. That's helpful. I appreciate it. It says, our schools should not depend upon imported produce for grain and vegetables and, for, and the fruits so essential to our health. It says, our youth need an education in felling trees and tilling the soil as well as in literary lines. Isn't that strange? We were to be teaching in our schools young people that they could actually grow all their food. And you know how we would teach them to do that? By doing it. That sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Could you imagine schools actually having the young people, along with the teachers, by the way, together in a unified effort, actually raising their own provisions? That's fanatical, isn't it? It's wonderful, right? It's beautiful. And imagine, imagine if you as a young person went to a school and you, rolled, you raised all your own food. When you went forth from that place, you would have a stability of character. You would have a belief that you could do something in life that you could provide for your family. That you wouldn't have to depend at all times on some business to pay all your bills, right? You actually could believe, hey, if all else fails, I know that I can raise provisions for my family. What a beautiful thought. Our schools, that was part of our education. Not the only thing. Obviously, Jesus was number one. We needed studies in the sciences, but we should have been raising up food also, right? So why is agriculture the A, B, and C of education? We're going to quickly run over a few things. Could it be that agriculture teaches us to to depend upon God for fruit? There's three kinds of fruit that I can think of anyway. Number one, the natural fruit or food. We don't trust in others for our necessities. We depend upon God. But we collaborate with Him in the field. We become co-laborers. We can't make our seeds grow. You probably all experienced that. Have you ever had a time where you planted some seeds and they were coming out later than you expected? And you're like, oh man, maybe they're not going to come out at all. I've been there, right? 
you realize, wow, at this point, maybe you water it, you do your best, but it's really up to God. And so you collaborate with him. Number two. Number two is the gospel fruit. Another kind of fruit that we can learn from the ABCs of agricultural education is that the gospel fruit of those we minister to. We shouldn't depend on our pastor. His job is to teach us to garden, not to do all the gardening. I'm talking about gardening for souls. We are to be co-laborers, and our schools are to train our young people also in going out into the community to be witnesses to the community. And agriculture also helps teach us that. Number three, number three is we should not... Uh, we, it's part of this fruit that we gain is the fruit of the Spirit. We are dependent upon the Spirit for the fruit of the Spirit. But we are co-laborers, meaning as we receive the fruit from the Spirit, we are to live out the fruit of the Spirit. So friends, we have this A, B, and C of education to train us in the spiritual life, in the physical life, when it comes to raising our own provisions, and also for the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to jump forward because we don't have time to go over this. I'm sorry. We're running late. I'm running late would be a better way of saying it. But So what do we see here? The secret of success. You may have heard this quotation. This is from a great book called Patriarchs and Prophets. And in this story, it's talking about Joshua fighting with the enemies of Israel. Joshua had received the promise that God would surely overthrow the enemies of Israel. Yet he put forth his earnest effort as though success depended upon the armies of Israel alone. He did all that human energy could do, and then he cried in faith for divine aid. The secret of success is the union of the divine power with human effort. Those who achieve the greatest results are those who rely most implicitly upon the almighty arm. And agriculture teaches us that. When we are in connection with God daily with the soil, with the plants, as we work with them, we are in connection with the creator because nature's voice is the voice of Christ speaking to us. And our young people should be daily in contact with Christ. Even if they come as skeptics, being in the field may draw them nearer to Jesus in ways they never expected. And just like Avondale, maybe nearly all the young people will be fully converted. What a beautiful thought. So we see this here. And you may know that we're looking, we're told there's a certain kind of independence that is praiseworthy. There's a bad kind too. But independence of one kind is praiseworthy. To desire to bear your own weight and not to eat the bread of dependence is right. It is a noble, generous ambition that dictates the wish to be self-supporting. Industrious habits and frugality are necessary. So this idea, we could be training our children, this is necessary for the last days. Because what if you're totally dependent upon people around you? What if you are dependent upon a universal basic income to sustain you? What if you need the government forever to sustain Now, listen, if somebody uh, has a handicapped and cannot do things, praise the Lord, we can help each other out with our taxes and to help people who need it. Praise the Lord. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. But as far as in general, our schools should be training healthy, able-bodied people to learn a noble independence. So that if things get difficult, because think about it, if things get difficult and you're thinking, man, I might not be able to get a paycheck, what might you be willing to do? Bend your morals for a paycheck. Bend your morals for the mark of the beast, which says you cannot buy or sell. 
But if you have a spiritual, noble independence, you've been connected with nature, you are less likely to be led astray by all of these things. Now, thinking about this, Self-government is the paramount objective. We read this already. The object of discipline is the training of the child for self-government. This is one of the great purposes of our schools. He should be taught self-reliance and self-control. Now, I want to close with this. We all probably have heard these verses. They're some just very beautiful verses. It's a challenge to all of us. Where it says in Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6... Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And that's one of the things that agriculture helps you to do. As we heard the testimony, the beautiful uh, testimony of the dye singers this morning, it was they had to trust in God because they had a you know, crop failure. They had difficult times. They had financial hardship. And in those times, we, we turn to God, right? And we're going to be going through difficult times. There'll be a great scattering. Many of us will be spread across the world, all over the globe, Right? This cushy life that we lived prior to COVID is not going to last forever, right? And we're going to, something is going to happen to cause God's people, just like in Acts chapter 8, to be spread to the world. The same thing is going to happen in the last days. But we need to learn through the simplicity of being connected through God in nature. We need to learn to trust Him with all of our heart. To lean not unto our own understanding in all our ways we are to acknowledge Him and He will what? direct our paths. So friends, I want to challenge you. If you're in the educational system, may God lead you to be able to start. I know this isn't going to happen overnight that schools are going to raise their own provisions. It sounds crazy. It sounds fanatical. It sounds nuts. But we're actually told if schools were doing these things, we would be better prepared to help the world in the last days. And if we get back to these things, maybe there's some young people. Maybe you're just finishing school. Maybe you're going into college and God could use you to help implement these things in the world. Maybe you're already older in life. You do agriculture and you'd like to be in contact with a school to help maybe work with a school. There are schools who could use farmers. Whatever it is. But if the Lord is calling you to be a part of this work with our school system, and if God is calling you to, if He puts it on your heart this year, to send in money not for me. I, I, don't, I don't get any of that money. I'm, this is not for me. It is for this program for these young people. I think of these young ladies who are making this, this educational program for our young people and this can help facilitate this. So friends, if the Lord puts any of this on your heart, you go forward in the steps of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus and your word. I pray that you would draw each one of us nearer to you. I pray that we would become people who learn to depend upon so much upon you that you become our all in all in life. That as we're connected with you through nature, we hear the voice of Christ speaking to us. We know the primary place we hear the voice of Christ is in your word. But you also created this world to be a blessing to our souls. Help us, Lord, in all of these endeavors in our educational system, in our agriculture, to be a light to our communities, to be a light to the world, that if we ever had to move away, that people would notice something has changed, something is missing, because we should not be there just growing food. We should be there growing food to be a blessing to society and also helping out the community around us. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.